Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's it. The summer holidays are over. The kids are back at school. And of course, politicians should be getting back to work in Stormont. But they're not. And here's the thing. We don't seem to mind. The latest Belfast Telegraph Lucid Talk polling tells us the vast majority of unionists are behind the DUP boycott. Based on where we are at the moment and the need for those key concerns to be addressed, we're not in a position to endorse the Windsor framework. And on the nationalist side, support for Sinn Féin just keeps growing. Mick McDonald, what's your message to unionists who right now will be scared? Don't be scared. The future is bright for all of us. Joining me to discuss the political season ahead, or the lack of it, I have commentator Alex Keane and the managing director of Lucid Talk, Bill White. Bill, I'll start with yourself. 34% of unionists want the DUP to return to Stormont, but 64% of respondents believe Geoffrey Donaldson's party is on the right course. Yes, that's that's the results um, in summary of the question when we asked uh, what choice um, should the unionist political parties make. It's important to point out that we only polled unionist voters on this question um, uh, because quite logically the most of the non or 99% of the non-unionist voters you could be safely assumed would say yes they should go back to Stormont. So you summed it up, yes 64%, nearly 2 out of 3 say that removal of the Windsor framework is a priority and the DUP should not re-enter Stormont institutions um, until the Windsor framework uh, Northern Ireland Protocol is removed completely and we did have on that question as well at the end of it even if this means the permanent closure of Stormont because we wanted to get a across the point, look, think of the consequences here. It's all right saying don't go back, stand your ground. But if you say even if this means the permanent closure of Stormont, we try to get that point across. And that was within the question just to say, look, you know, think about this. But even with that, 64% of unionists overall said uh, supported that particular said that's the policy that the DUP should follow. Now that's made up of 76% of DUP voters 85 percent, 95% sorry, of TUV voters who follow that policy. And the only one, if you like, against the trend is this, is UUP voters, Doug Beatty's party. 22%, only 22% in quotes of um, 
uh, UUP voters said it would support that policy. So they um, they are going against the trend, as it were, of the DUP voters and the TUV voters. Now, 76% is down, actually, from over 80% it was in the previous poll uh, of DUP voters. So there's a slight trend of some DUP voters thinking, well, maybe we should go back to Stormont. So there is a trend there. It's very small, but it's notable. But uh, Alex... You know, speaking to commentators perhaps over the last six months, especially in the spring, there seemed to be this this sort of expectation that by the autumn that we had to have a return to Stormont, that the DUP would find some sort of solution or some formula of words. We're almost in September. That's the poll in which Geoffrey Donaldson is looking at. There's no chance of Stormont returning, is there? Well, oddly, and this will strike many of your listeners as odd because it's coming from me, I'm still... I'm fairly optimistic that a deal is going to be done that will be cut. I'm not saying that it's going to be a perfect deal. I'm not going to say either that it means that we'll have an assembly up and running for years and end, you know, with happiness and and good government. I'm simply saying I think there's a point coming, irrespective of of, of what Bill's poll is saying, I think there's a point coming fairly soon at which unionism, all of unionism, is going to accept one very clear thing, and that is that the Windsor framework is not going to go away. If you look at the polls from, you know, uh, 2019, it wasn't directly on to do with because we didn't have the protocols per se and, and the framework at that point. But if you look at that, there was always a sense that a majority, of, a thumping majority of unionism wanted change, it wanted reassurances, it wanted settlement and so on. So for a while, the, the DUP were able to argue, well, we're going to get change you know, on the on the protocol. That's what Geoffrey said when he was through the, his first minister, he said, we're doing this because we've, we're putting it up to Boris Johnson. Johnson didn't deliver. Then they kept going, well, we're putting it up to Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak didn't deliver. In fact, in some ways, you could argue he made it even worse and more difficult for, for the DUP. In the next couple of weeks, um, Sunak will give a formal response to the 18-page document that the DUP gave to him before the summer holidays. And at that point, he's going to have to say something like, we are not reopening. And here's your choice, Jeffrey. This is, is is the reality you now face, and for all of unionism, you either have you either return to an assembly in which the um, the winter framework is going to be implemented, or you leave the assembly entirely, and there'll be some form of direct rule or whatever you want to call it, in which the winter framework is going to be implemented. And I think when that moment comes, and if you're looking at a future poll, so instead of Bill saying, what do you think the DUP should do? Because I think there's still a lot of unions who think, well, we've got a bit of change on the, on, on the Northern Protocol. We've got a bit of change in this. And with the Windsor Framework, maybe a bit of change. They're still holding out the hope that maybe there's just a chance that some more changes coming. But if the moment comes when it's clear there is going to be no change coming, the question then becomes that, you know, no, and in some ways I think it actually makes it easier for Donaldson if he says that the, the choice is now much clearer, guys. It's between what price are you willing to pay for devolution, what price are you willing to pay for not devolution. That is a much, oddly enough, I think that's a much easier debate for Donaldson than having to, well, let's hold on for another few weeks. Let's give somebody else something to think about. From the point of view of Jeffrey Donaldson's ego and perhaps the ego of unionism in general, it still would seem to be a very bitter pill to swallow after all of this. If you have to accept it in the end, I mean... Um, I think Jeffrey needs something from the British government, some sort of image thing, some sort of speech from Rishi Sunak, some sort of um, assertion about the union. It may not mean anything legally. It, it may not mean that the Windsor Framework Northern Ireland Protocol has changed, but at least something he can latch on to, to be able to move back into Stormont. 
yes, the results here, just to go back to the results, are pretty firm in that the vast majority of the unionist voter base are supporting the DUP policy of staying out of Stormont at the moment. However, it's, it depends how that there is a ballast vote always within that, as I've said before, in that if Jeffrey does change the policy and go back in, yes, there will be opposition, but most of, maybe some of that or most of that support that's currently supporting the boycott will swing in behind the DUP again because their party policy, because they're just loyal to the party policy and they'll trust Jeffrey's leadership and etc. Uh, particularly if he gets some sort of support from the British government to do that. He's also got the a little advantage, it's not a direct advantage, but the little advantage that the vast majority, 66% of the UUP voter base, think that they should go back to Stormont. So he's got that. If he can get some support from outside the camp, if you like, from Doug Beatty and the UUP voter base, it's less than the DUP voter base, of course. It's a smaller party, but at least that will be of a little bit of help. Taking into account that there's nearly one in five of, D, of DUP voters, one in five who think um, they should go back to Stormont. So, okay, that's a minority, but it's not, as I've said before, a small minority. It's not five or seven percent. It's nearly 20 percent. So that's there, you know. Uh, well, Doug Beatty's been taking a bit of flack for, for his dissenting stance, but to, do, do, do you think it's, I mean, it's obviously you formally connected with the UUP. Do you think it's a significant role that Doug Beatty could play in this, Alex? I think it's a significant role in the sense that he has 10 MLAs and Jeffrey Donaldson, as I suspect, will have to make a crucial decision at some point uh, and he may lose two or three of his own. If he could go in with, say, 20 of twenty DUP, 10 UUP, maybe Claire Sugden as an independent and I don't know what would happen to Alex Easton, he's an overwhelming majority of the unionist MLAs would be backing them, backing them. But some of the people, and I think it's, I just want to say this, because I think it's an important point that uh, people will say, oh, well, I mean, the DUP is not going to turn. It couldn't possibly turn. If you go back to July 1998, when the Assembly first met, there was a feeling people say this was the moment the DUP was still talking in peace, was still talking about the destruction of this one-way ticket to United Ireland. They didn't. They added up the figures. And it is true, if you look at those figures, if the DUP and Bob McCartney and two or three of the Ulster Assembly had walked at that point, the Assembly would have collapsed there and then. You go to 1999 when the first executive was established, people were saying, oh, the DUP will have nothing to do with it. They came up with a, let's sit outside the room. We're not in the room with Sinn Féin. We're out. They took the ministry posts. If you look at 2005 and six with the Sinan saying the DEP were never going to talk to Sinn Féin. They talked to them. They struck a bespoke deal. And crucially, in 2007, when after that election, and, and during that election, the question came up uh, for the DUP, would you share power with Sinn Féin? Would you go in if it was, I think they would think it was Jerry Kelly at some point. I was down, oh, no, that's never going to happen. Within weeks, they had done it because they'd reached the point where there was nowhere else to go. You either walked completely or you stayed in and made it work. And I think, just historically speaking, I think that's where the DUP is going to find themselves very soon. And all bets are off at that point. Because when you say to people, not only your elected representatives, but when you say to your party, when you say to unionists generally, we've now reached the point, if we walk away from this now, devolution may be gone. We have no control over what happens next or we take the risk. And I just think, it, historically speaking, when you look at unionism, going back to the UUP back to 74 or 73, and the DUP from about 98, 9 onwards, they have always proved themselves willing to take the unexpected hop, leap and a skip to where they need to be. Well, there's a, there is another issue. And I suppose what started as a, a kind of conspiracy theory, a low jab on social media, it has perhaps 
morphed into a wider belief in the nationalist community. And that is that this isn't about the framework at all, that this is about the fact that Sinn Féin are the largest party and that they would be the first minister and that that is too much for unionism. Is there any basis to that belief? Well, yes, we did ask that question uh, of non-unionist voters. The question we just discussed was, as I've said, for unionist voters only. And then uh, if you didn't vote for a unionist party or you didn't... um, you know, in terms of, and we obviously track all this within our polling systems, um, at last year's Northern Ireland Assembly election, and you didn't choose a, a unionist party in this particular poll. We asked the question, what do you think are the real reasons the DUP are stopping vetoing the Northern Ireland government institutions from working? And that was um, done by total results and also by Sinn Féin voters only, SDLP voters only, and Alliance Green and others voters only, so it covered the complete non-unionist camp. And it found out that 66% of that overall non-unionist voter base did believe the main reason, at very least the main reason for staying out of Stormont was that this DUP were reluctant to serve as a Deputy First Minister with the Sinn Féin First Minister. The, as you would expect, that... um, that view is more strongly expects, uh, expressed within the Sinn Féin voter base. Uh, 45% of the Sinn Féin voter base think the total reason for staying out of Stormont is the Windsor Framework. It's not even a you know a supporting reason. Uh, the total reason is 45% of Sinn Féin voters believe the DUP are staying out of Stormont is we don't want to serve uh, as Deputy First Minister to Sinn Féin First Minister. 36% of Sinn Féin voters believe is the main reason on top of the 45%. So you're way up to 70-80% of the total Sinn Féin voter base do actually believe at least the main reason is that they don't want to serve as a Deputy First Minister to a Sinn Féin First Minister. So that's coming through quite strongly. 44% of the Alliance voter base um, we'll go to the other sort of side of the non-unionist camp. 44% believe the main reason is the DUP to want to serve as a uh, Deputy First Minister. And 14% believe is the total reason, 14% of the Alliance voter base. Um, the um, So they have, even that, funny enough, the Alliance voter base has a more strongly, you know, view more in line with the Sinn Féin view, if you like. Uh, the SDLP are more nuanced. 30% believe the main reason of the SDLP voter base is, is believe the main reason is the DUP don't want to serve as a Deputy First Minister with a Sinn Féin First Minister. 59% believe the main reason is the Northern Ireland Protocol. This is the SDLP voter base. 59% believe the main reason is the Northern Ireland Protocol, with the supporting reason being they're a bit reluctant to serve as Deputy First Minister. So it's quite a strong view coming from the non-unionist voter base that, frankly, this um, is just an excuse, the Windsor framework, and uh, the comments you get back is as well, because we pick up sometimes the comments within our polls as well is, oh, that, you know, if, it wasn't, if the Windsor framework was totally solved, there'd be some other reason the DUP wouldn't want to serve as a Deputy First Minister. But that's the feeling coming from that voter base, you know, as the poll shows. And Alex, is that is that common sense or sectarian assumptions? Well, I, I think it's a matter of both, actually. I think if you, if you go back to the, the, the 2017 to 2020 period when the, uh, the Assembly wasn't meeting, I did hear um, some uh, SDLP, Sinn Féin Alliance and others saying that one of the reasons that uh, the DUP wasn't willing to cut the deal, remember they were very close to a deal, I think it was in 2018 over the Irish language and it all fell apart. 
apart. And there were some people suggesting across within unionism that they weren't comfortable going back in because don't forget the 2017 was the, the, the first time that election when unionism for the first time had lost its overall majority in a, in a, an assembly, in Northern Ireland assembly or parliament. There was a sense that you, you were going back in, you know, you were no longer master of what you surveyed that when, you know, if Ireland was to get up, if she was fair leader, if she was to get up, she'd no longer be able to say the words on behalf of the people of Northern Ireland because somebody said, well, you're no longer speaking on behalf because this house is no longer uh, a, a, a unionist house. But if it, I think... My gut instinct, I'm, I'm talking about the Ulster Unionist Party, I'm talking about most of the people I know in the DUP who I've talked to about this, uh, picked of their MLAs and councillors and so on. I do not detect that sense of, the, you know, if, if, it, if that was the issue, if, if, if they got their, the, whatever they wanted on the, on the um, framework and things like that, I've never picked up the sense from the vast majority of those representatives that they could not live because they'd already taken that jump. They'd taken the jump in one sense. It was a far bigger jump for the DUP to accept Martin McGuinness as Deputy First Minister to Ian Paisley than it is for the DUP to accept having themselves to be Deputy First Minister because they lost the vote. You know, that, that that's how that would be seen. And I think certainly Geoffrey Donaldson, I, I, I don't think he would have any difficulty at all either himself or appointing someone to be a, a DUP Deputy First Minister. Yeah, but, 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 but let me okay, finish the point. Sorry. But I think it is quite clear that out there, it is, there is a very clear feeling, particularly within Sinn Féin, that no matter what happens, that's what this issue is. And I think that's what's making it very, very difficult because they know, although they Sinn Féin believe, as does everyone else, there isn't going to be something that will uh, keep the unionists happy. And that the reason unionists can't say this is because actually there's a deeper reason. It's nothing to do with the framework. They know that's done and dust. They know it's not going to be happen. They just don't want to have somebody in their party to stand up and say, I'm now Deputy First Minister. A huge psychological blow. And I think just that the 2017 losing the overall majority, then losing their status as the biggest party, then losing the dibs on on, on First Minister. Those are, I'm not excusing them, but for a lot of unionism, those are huge psychological blows. Yeah, no, no, you made the point for me there. I was, I was going to say, Alex, you're picking up from the unionist base. Of course, what we mm-hmm. did in the poll here is poll the non-unionist voters. Yeah. And this perception, could be, the view could be wrong. Yes, indeed, it could be proven wrong. But the, certainly the poll is showing at the moment there's a strong feeling that this is only an excuse. And, uh, of course, you know, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. One, one um, in terms of whether, you know, Stormont gets back up and working again. You know, one point I would say... Um, Michelle O'Neill is his first minister designate. The unionists haven't seen the, and indeed nobody has seen the media image of that, for example, the first press conference, when, uh, of course, we all know they're in equal office, but the first minister does speak first. Uh, Michelle O'Neill, no doubt, will say as first minister, whether she says Northern Ireland or the North of Ireland, I don't know. Uh, and then, of course, whoever's deputy first minister follows on from that. She, the uh, Michelle O'Neill will take the first question from the floor in terms of journalists. And I'm just talking, I'm going to be interested in Alex's view here. The overall image of that, the unionist community hasn't seen yet. Well, they have seen her interacting with King Charles, who clearly... <laughs> no, but that's not, that's not the same. Yeah, well, OK, I take your point, but that's not the same as that first press conference and the other roles when she actually takes on the live role of First Minister, because that hasn't happened yet. She's always been First Minister designate. She's never been in the office of First Minister. I'm talking about Michelle O'Neill here. So that image going out over the media, which the media, it's not the media's fault, they have to report it, but that image going out to the unionist community, I don't know. That is something will be a moment when unionists will really realise that, yes, they're deputy. Uh, and there's always that word deputy. Yes, yeah, certainly. 
But I was going to say, yes, I agree. I think if you look back to the first relationship between Paisley and McGuinness, which surprised everybody by being so cordial, but it was the cordiality of that relationship that saw Paisley mm. toppled within a year because people, and I was picking this up from the ground outside, people saying, oh, we don't want this. You know, it's, 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 it's bad enough having to do it without making it look as always enjoying it. Robinson and McGuinness had a very good relationship. And people forget about this. And I was there at times, you know, when they would throw to each other, you know, you know, a question technically might have been meant for Peter. And he would quite happily just sort of nod over to, to, to McGuinness and vice versa. So the image, it's impressive. Yeah, but he was it's, always first minister. I know, but it doesn't minister. matter. But if you, if you go back and watch a lot of those press conferences, they didn't, mm. make, they didn't make the big issue of it. They didn't make it say, well, I'll answer that first because I'm first minister. And I was first minister on behalf of my community. They didn't do that. So a lot will depend. The typical is, even if they get this up and running, which I still think they will, and, and, it, and it, it, it's Michelle and whoever the DUP have, it's still going to be difficult because there's still a lot of bad blood after the past two you years. You made a good point there. It, it does depend how Michelle O'Neill handles the role the word she uses, does she use the North of Ireland a lot instead of Northern Ireland? Uh, if they do it in a conciliatory way, if you do use that point, then, you know, it could work quite well. If we can turn to party support, and I made the point in the introduction that Sinn Féin continue to be, to be strong, even in the absence of in the absence of politics, according to, to the latest poll, to the Lucy Talk poll, up to 31%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great, and we've talked about it before, we've all talked about it before, but it, it, it does seem that there's, 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 there's a glass ceiling there with Sinn Féin have well and truly broke through. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they got 29% in the Northern Ireland Assembly election poll uh, 15 months ago. Um, and in our polls, we poll quarterly, as you know. So, I mean, it went up to 30, 32, 31, 29, now back up to 31. So they're staying 1 or 2% above what they polled at last year's Northern Ireland Assembly election. So certainly it's very strong. It's not advancing um Strongly, but then again, you know, that's quite a high score. Um, they're maintaining that. It's not as if the 29% was a high watermark. That's the poll they got in last year's Northern Ireland Assembly election. So they're adding to that and they're building on it and it's holding very firm. So, yes, indeed, they're certainly comfortably Northern Ireland's largest party and have been uh, right since the Northern Ireland Assembly election. The DUP have come back. They got a pretty, you know, thumping uh, at the last year's Northern Ireland Assembly election. As we said before, uh, 21.3% they got. Now, they have bobbled up to the mid sort of 20s again on our polls. They're up to 24. They went to 27, down to 25. Now they're back up to 26% in this poll. So they're holding that. But that's still, a you know, for Sinn Féin, from the Sinn Féin point of view, that's still, you know, they're still 5 or 6% ahead of where the DUP's at. So that's quite comfortable. Certainly on these figures, no matter what way you cut all the preferences, etc., etc. If there was another another Northern Ireland Assembly election, uh, then certainly Sinn Féin would be, you know, at least two to three seats ahead of the DUP. They're two seats ahead now. They could be three or four seats ahead quite comfortably, but there's no way on these vote share figures the DUP would get anywhere near to being the largest party again. Alex, the UUP and the SDLP both a point down. Do you think they'll ever, we'll ever get to the point where they won't decline anymore or, 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 or are these parties just slowly slipping away? Well, it, it, 
SNLP is particularly interesting because I think there was, if you go back to when they were hitting sort of 10, 9, 10, 8, sort of, there was a feeling that they really couldn't go much lower. And I remember one member of the SDLP, I'll spare his blushes, telling me, you know, Alex, if this, if this falls, once we get below 8%, there comes a point beyond which recovery is almost impossible. Yet you, you would be relying on Sinn Féin to implode, in essence. And they've now got, they've now got to that, 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 that very dangerous point. And uh, what is interesting, and maybe says, something about the, the, the problems the, the, the SDLP had, how little criticism there is of, of Colin Eastwood, how little criticism there was of the campaign, how little criticism there is of the candidates. It's almost as if the party internally, they don't want to say it. No one's going to come out and say the words this, we're in, I was going to use it, I'll, I'll use a different word, we're in a very difficult place right now. But I think when you talk to them privately, they all know it. And as one of them said to me quite recently, and this is someone who's been in the game a long, long time and understands the game. And someone I would, when I want to know what's going on within soft nationalism and the SDLP, I would always talk to. He said, Alex, I do not know how the SDLP um, recovers. The problem, I think, for the UUP is slightly different because, well, the SDLP, I don't sense any great uh, division, two great wings within the, in the SDLP. There are wings of the, of the Ulster Unionist Party. And while Bill's point about, you know, the, the 22% who support the DUP line, that is probably reflected, would be a higher figure if you took people who belong to the party, the people who knock the doors and to go out to, mm. to go to the constituency meeting. I would push that figure up from 22% to maybe 40%. And that is BT's problem, that he is trying to, um, you know, get... I still I haven't been in the Ulster Unionist Party for... I, I think I left in 2010 to go full-time freelance. I still get regular phone calls and messages from members of the party saying, what's going on, Alex? What are they doing? What's the leadership up to? There is still that sense that it's a wing and a prayer. Uh, for the party, and I think, well, Doug will, will take some comfort from the figures in the sense, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, twenty-two percent. I think he has to bear inside, inside where it really matters in his party executive and so on, and in his constituency associations. There's a much higher percentage of most units who, who are very unhappy right now. Bill, can I ask a question about the smaller parties? I just wonder when you get to the smaller parties and in terms of polling. Is that, is that a less reliable figure than that? Than the, than yes, in a mathematical sense, your, your point's a good one. The overall average uh, poll error in the overall total results is plus or minus 2.3% either way. I mean, the mathematics of that we can go into, but it, it may we may switch off our audience. It gets quite detailed. But uh, yes, as you go to the smaller sample sizes, and this applies as well when you start looking at male, female, age groups, etc., the course the results are useful. They still should be looked at. They're very indicative, but they present overall trends. So it's it's the error goes up slightly as you go to the smaller parties. Um, and in this case, you should, you know, as we always say in all our poll reports, you should treat any sort of smaller sample analyses within the poll with a reason, you know, a degree of caution is, is the words we use. But um, so the overall thing to look at is whether they're holding steady or whether they're moving upwards. I mean, I mean, we have the Green Party went down to 1%. They've gone back up to 2% again, showing that there's this little movement of support back towards the Green Party where they were before. The TUV, for example, were at 7.6% in the Northern Ireland Assembly election. They dropped away last August and into uh, the turn of the year. They went back up to 7% in our April poll, and they're now down to 5%, mostly, obviously, exchanging support 
with the DUP, as you would expect. But then the DUP are sort of following this boycott policy with Stormont, which, of course, the TUV supports strongly. So it's hard to know how that would change if and when the DUP go back into Stormont. They, you know, the TUV may get a boost again of people who feel that the DUP are following the wrong policy. Maybe they voted for the TUV before and they switch back to the DUP. But um, the, the people for profit are holding steady in one. I on to have moved from 1% to 2%. So there is a slight trend of growing support for them. But within the point, to go back to your original point, yes, I mean, we can't be totally absolute about these figures. All we can stand over them and say is, Onto have had a, a little bit of a boost. There are people out there who have, you know, said they'll support Onto when they didn't um, perhaps say they would support them before. Same with the Green Party. People before profit are holding on to their original core vote. They got 1.1% in the Northern Ireland Assembly election. They're on 1% in this poll. They've got a core good, loyal support, but it's not growing. It's there. It's probably in the same place. They probably know this themselves. So that's that's the way you really should look at the figures. No, don't disregard them. We you know we stand over them, but there is a slight higher area. Your point's a good one. I think I just wonder, I mean, Jim Allister has a massive media profile. So does Jerry Carroll have a massive media profile. And Ian to have a niche. Uh, Peter Pather Tobin has a relatively strong media profile here and the Greens we face you know, no matter what your opinion on Green politics, we face huge climactic issues across the planet and I just wonder you know, and people before profit would be active on the ground and you look at social media and you see the presence of these parties and they seem to be very, very strong and there's demos and, and everything and people's out in the street and yet it just never tr- translates into something real and significant. Is it that social media, Alex, exaggerates these parties? Or maybe it's just that I go to the wrong watering holes? <laughs> uh, or, 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 or is it an actual fact that the, that the game of politics is much more than simply a, a battle of ideas, really? Well, I, th- I think in terms of the Northern Ireland Assembly in, in, in its 25th year, and at some point, if we get a chance, I'd like to talk about alliance in that, in that mm. sense. But I think if you look into one of the things that we're, we're looking at right at the beginning, if, if you go back in 1998, I, I remember doing an interview. I think you might have been there, Bill, but we were talking about uh, what we would expect Northern Ireland to look like in 25 years' time. And my hope was that we would see that we probably would still have, you know, unionism and that in some form, maybe change, but, but what I would hope to see a new way of doing political business because the parties would have sort of morphed gently into one that would have sort of towards a genuine middle ground and there would have been genuine, I, I, I described it as genuinely new voices and vehicles emerging. They haven't. They haven't. Some have come and have gone very quickly. And I think one of the problems is it, it's not that the, the lack of enthusiasm or ideas or radicalism or wanting to see, you know, do things differently. I think for Still a lot of people who like people before profit and onto and some of the other, the Greens and some of the others that have come and gone in that time. It's just that sense voting for them is going to make no difference because they're not going to, because even if they, even if a few of them get in, there's going to be nothing. The Assembly's not stable. The Assembly doesn't do anything. Overall, politics hasn't changed. And the very people, these fringe groups would have hoped to attract in that time, people who had opted out for years. I mean, we're talking about what, 40% have just never voted for anything. You see, go look at the, the referendum and look at the first assembly and the second assembly, then you can see the figures beginning to come down. And there's actually one, the, maybe the biggest um, uh, voting, uh, or interesting thing is in voting in Northern Ireland, is the, the numbers of people who still couldn't be bothered voting, even with this new dispensation, who show 
showed an interest in 25 and have given up. And that, you know, when people say about why you worry about things, that worries me more than anything else, Karen. Is that sense that the people who had hoped, who voted for the referendum in the referendum, who voted yes, a lot of those people from the pro union background who hadn't voted in any election for 25, 30 came out, they voted. That's what gave Trimble his majority. That's what took unionism over the line. They've all backed out again. They've all disappeared again. And I think that that, that applies to the smaller left wing parties as well. There's just no interest. And just uh, very quickly on the point you made about Jim Allister. Before Jim Allister, there was Bob McCartney. Before Bob McCartney, there was someone else. That's the nature of unionism. There's always someone, I won't describe them, I know both of them well, I won't describe them as maverick or fringes, but there's always a unionist voice somewhere will always account for five, six, seven percent. And then when when Jim, you know, is is no no longer in politics, there'll be someone else will emerge to fill that. that It's a very niche role because they never get more. Bob managed um, five in the UK UP in the first election, which I think uh, he came out of that, that, that assembly with only himself still in the party and the other four had formed a new party. I think, oddly enough, ironically, if Jim might hear this, he'll know I've, I've said it to me to his face. I think if Jim had, had come back in 22, the three or four or five members, I think he would be having an internal battle right now with them because fringe people tend to be very, very fringe until they get elected and then new realities <laughs> begin to play. <laughs> Having said all of that, we, you know, people often talk about the, the 40% who don't vote. And it's a very philosophical debate. And uh, as I always say, it's, a, it's a perhaps a debate for a whole other podcast. But we can't really presume to know, you know, we can't assume that, that, that there's a whole perhaps green or left wing vote in that 40%. We just, we really don't know, do we? Like, No, it's very hard. And the non-voter research is is very hard to determine it's made up of a number of complex parts. It's, you know, made up of people who are very well off, who don't believe that they're probably more powerful than politicians in terms of they run businesses, they're in very senior roles within society. You tend to get a lower proportion of them who don't vote. The younger people, of course, as we well know, coming on to the voter register takes them a few years before they really get interested in politics. That's when they start to get responsibilities like mortgages and they get jobs. They start noticing tax going out of their um, wage slips. Of course, there is a view that if you made voting compulsory, you'd probably get roughly the same results because the non-voter base would probably split the same way as roughly the voter base at the moment. That actually is a view that's commonly held in more... Uh, you know, homogeneous societies and more societies like Britain and the United States. That's probably true. I'm not too sure that's true in Northern Ireland. I think there's probably a higher level of proportion of people who are not committed to one cause or the other within the non-voter base. That's quite a logical thing to say. But I was going to say that I think Bill will remind me of his name. I hope it was the, the guy that wrote the, the what became the Bible of public opinion research, Robert L. Burney, oh, yeah. 1923, a book called Crystallising Public Opinion. I wonder if this is, he, he's talking not so much about politics, he's talking about advertising, but how you shift opinion. He said, and one of the issues that came up, and I think in a later book, we're talking about how it affects politics and politicians, how you attract voters. And he said, it's key, and I'm Richard, remember, I think it's a paraphrase, is more or less this. He says, uh, if you want to shift people, it's make them feel it matters to them. And I think for a lot of people when it comes to voting, it's not that they're not interested. People say, oh, well, if you're not interested, they are interested. They just feel that their vote is going to make no difference to the institution and whatever the outcome is going to make no difference to them. And I think deep down, I think the key to getting people to a ballot box is that they genuinely believe that vote in that box will make a difference, not only on the day, but will make a difference during the lifetime of the parliament or the assembly or the institution. And I think that's why increasing numbers of people will actually 
come away from voting because I think there is an increasing feeling that it doesn't matter how you vote now. There's these elites. I don't. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm just simply saying there's a feeling that there are people who are, who are even bigger than Parliament. They're bigger than government. They make all the decisions, and if they make the decisions and they're not standing, why should we vote for the middleman? The big, the, the other big factor is, of course, is if and when, if and when those two words, there is a Northern Ireland border poll, as Alex and as all of us know, you are going to get a large chunk of these non voters yeah. in Northern Ireland elections coming out to vote. Because they may, even if them, you, yeah. even if you, well, it not only it matters to them. They, they, if you interview these people now, no, I wouldn't vote in the Northern Ireland poll. They won't be able to avoid the white heat of that yes. campaign. I mean, they'll get so involved in it. There'll be wall-to-wall media coverage, as you well know, and there'll be TV specials and the Belfast Telegraph will be running special editions in terms of building up to the Northern Ireland border. But you know all that. They won't be able to avoid getting involved and starting to think about it. So you will get an extra 80, 90, 100,000 people coming out and voting in the Northern Ireland border poll who probably haven't voted. They came out in the referendum in 1998, the Good Friday Agreement referendum. But it's very hard to determine how those people are going to vote until there's a campaign underway. That's when the polling in the Scottish referendum became accurate. It became accurate about two to three months out from the referendum. You know, it started off with was 25% supported independence. It went up to 45% in the final poll. And the final opinion polls before that final referendum was were quite accurate. But it was only in the last two or three months when people really knew, started taking part in opinion polling, had sort of made up their mind, had experienced the campaign building up to that referendum. That's when you'd really know. Looking at it from outside, until you have that experience of the campaign, it's very, very hard to tell how a Northern Ireland border poll would go overall. And I suppose that's why many people would say, I don't want a border poll because I enjoy being neutral and I enjoy not being able to, uh, I enjoy I enjoy sitting on the fence here. Mm. Now, that's not why I'm moving on. I, I realise it's, it's a bad clash when I... We pres- all know where you're going now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, di- I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. Alliance is the next thing in my list. So, and I didn't mean to imply sitting on the fence. Uh, but that's a whole other podcast, as I always say. But Alliance, yeah, strong, up two points in, on, on 15%. Alex, lately you've been saying, and I, I've read in the in, in the Irish news, I don't think I've ever said the words Irish news on the Belltale podcast. I've said it twice. <laughs> but there you go. Um, you, you've been talking about this middle ground and and you don't know where middle ground people have a home, but surely, is that not Alliance? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure it is. Well, there are two issues there, I think, going back to what I was saying earlier about what we expected maybe 25 years down the line. In, in the first Assembly election, about 90% of people voted for parties which were quite clearly demarcated as as unionist, nationalist, and on that basis you make a slightly, Bill will know it's a polling thing, but you, you can make an assumption that if you're voting for a unionist or nationalist party, you would probably in a border poll vote uh, one way or the other based on that. It, that that ground of the ninety it's just down to seventy eight percent. At the last election, seventy eight percent of people still voted for those clear parties. Alliance in the first uh, assembly election, I think, was six point five percent. It's now going up to fifty. It's not a huge jump. And the reason I think, and again, I'm not knocking them. <laughs> uh, for those who are listening, this is not a personal thing. I think one of the reasons Alliance is interesting now and is the focus of a lot of attention on all sides or both main sides is not because it's a middle ground as such. It's because uh, unionists at 41% and nationalists at 37% are wondering if there was a border poll how that 15% uh, 
would split, which is why Alliance get a lot of dogs abuse from both sides in all of this. So yes, I think my, my concern is that that is not a normal middle ground. A middle ground is not simply that, that you know, the meat between the two big community blocks. Uh, the middle ground is, is not there. The middle ground is on uncharted, untapped areas, which no one, which actually saying this is not about just being. They, because Alliance is basically the same party it was in 1998. Uh, you know, so the when I talked earlier about you know the no new voices, I would have expected a party full of people who had never really got involved in politics before. Maybe that hundred thousand people who came out and voted in the referendum, people who hadn't voted and were looking for something different. And I think for the Alliance Party, again, it's not getting at them. It's simply saying that they, what the Alliance Party is offering, is not a genuine middle ground. It's just a party which is, uh, seems to say, well, you know, agno- put it this way, agnosticism. On the on the border issue is not a policy in and of itself. It's simply a way of of trying to get yourself out of constant messes. Won't be on the ballot paper, and it won't point. be on the ballot paper. But I I just think I would like to see. I would I would like to have seen a middle ground emerge because I think if if the, if we're talking about this as the lion's peak that it's it's come on seven or eight percent. That and Bill I think would recognise this. That's a fairly modest increase over that length of time, particularly when the two big community blocks are having so many internal problems. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, they have um, they have gone up. I mean, they were hitting eight nine percent in the various elections in the early two thousands, and now they're up around the. They got thirteen and a half percent in the last year's Northern Ireland Assembly election. There were some polls, particularly much higher than that, but um, you know we got it within zero point one percent. Have to say that again, don't I? Um, I think I've said that before. Um, so um, you know we 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 got we think our modelling of the alliance vote is 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 pretty accurate, and they're holding that. They've advanced one or two percent, they're up to 15 percent. But nothing dramatic, as Alex has said. But having said that, 15 percent, the overall share, you know, it's it's more than this, about 60 percent of what the DUP are polling at the moment. It's less than 50 percent of what Sinn Féin are polling. But it's still a substantial chunk. I mean, yeah. it's still... I'm not saying it, isn't it's, it? No, I know that. Yeah, it's, it's it, you know, they do hold the balance of power in that sense uh, more than the other parties. So it's, um, uh, you know, they are a powerful force. They're holding on to their vote, which is it's not fizzling away. A little bit of what the TUV is doing. You know, the TUV vote is coming away from that big 7.6% they got at last year's Northern Ireland Assembly elections, now down to 5%. Um, that, again, could be because you know, the DUP are following roughly the policy that the TUV want them to follow at the moment. So, um, but, uh, you know, but the Alliance is still an important player in the field um, and uh, be interesting to see if they can advance from that. But to advance from that, they need to go and eat into the, you know, get some of the non-voters involved in, you know, in politics more, maybe enthuse them more, get more of the of the, the people we've, we're ready to just discuss who don't vote at the moment, getting them out and getting them involved in politics. Yeah, I, say, I just think it's worth pointing out as well, like, you know, we're talking about Alliance's vote. In his first election outing back in 1973, um, Alliance polled 14%. It was, you know, those two. Or three well, that's true. And, and then, it, as the crisis between the two community blocks worsened, Alliance's vote went down because I think that I still believe there was that sense they weren't really middle. And I think we may see this uh, as we edge towards, uh, even if it's within ten years. And Bill says, you know, Alliance is in what would you call it, some, some sort of middle role, you know, at the, mm-hmm. some sort of. It isn't really because Alliance can do nothing. If the Sinn Féin and the DUP choose to bring down the Assembly, there's absolutely nothing Alliance can do. So in one sense, Alliance is in exactly the same position it was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. I know, Alex, you've been 
relatively positive for you, if you want to put it that way, that uh, Stormont will return. Um, there's you've outlined why. But uh, can I ask you both, and just in terms of what Leo Varadkar's been saying, Steve Baker's been saying, and other people have been saying, and off the back of a recent podcast we, we've had here, in which there was huge interest, and that was, is there a plan B? Is there a plan B? Would either of you like to punt a plan B or a possible plan B or a likely plan B? <laughs> I'm not even sure there's a plan A. That, that, that's the real problem <laughs> in, in all of this. Um, the plan B is where it would require all of the parties to accept outcomes of elections. It would require all the parties to accept that when you go into that election, you're going into that election with the only and sole purpose of agreeing to govern together. There is no requirement of them to govern together. And I said, I remember saying back in the, when the first executive was formed in 1999, I said my big fear, even in the formation of that executive, it was in fact two governments in the one executive. And I think that's the position we're still in. But you know something, Karen, if you just want to boil it in, even though I think there will be, they will cut a deal and get themselves going for another little while. My, my real sense of pessimism in all of this is that I don't think that there's a majority in either the Republican nationalist side or the unionist loyalist side who actually want to govern together. So no matter what you come up with, no matter what plan you come up with, no matter what sort of, you know, solution or pulling rabbit out of the hat type of attitude, you still got that sense that these are people who don't really want to do it. And that goes actually back to even with a referendum. I remember uh, I was at the count in the King's Hall on the day and I remember the, the DUP being booed as they left, you know, of off you go, whatever, something like that. I remember talking to some um, SDLP and some Ulster Unionists about this. And said, what does this mean? I said, well, I mean, you're going to have to prove, you're going now you are going to have to prove that the DUP was wrong. You're going to have to prove it by working together. And one of them just turned to me with barely a second and said, oh, that's going to take a long, long time. And that's the difficulty. That was 25 years ago. And we're still at that. No one would, from any party will say the word, yes, I would have no difficulty working with the, the other parties in doing this. I would have no difficulty in ending the silo system. I would have no difficulty in making programme for governments mandatory. I would have no difficulty in that executive responsible, collective responsibility is the key to all of this. They won't do it, Kieran, and that's the problem. Plan A, B, C, D, they will always fall at that hurdle if there isn't the genuine willingness and desire to work together. And I'm not sure that can ever emerge with the shadow of the border pole hanging over everything that happens now. I like I like Alex's term there a little bit. We'll get it back up and working again for another little while. <laughs> Well, I've not been saying that for 25 well, years. I know it's you what have. We do. I know you have. It's not, uh, not the best premise to start uh, getting an institution back up and working again. I, I don't know. In terms of getting it back up and working again, certainly, you know, Alex, um, you know, about his, uh, obviously he's a commentator. I'm just a humble pollster, as they say. But it, um, it's, it's hard. I have to say in practical terms, it's hard to see it getting done before. Christmas, I know Alex's um, things can happen fairly quickly, but you know, you have Parliament in recess, you have the conference season. Maybe with a Conservative conference coming up, you know, if, if Rishi Sunak and his keynote address, he, I think he has to mention something. I mean, because he has to cover all subjects, it's a very major speech. I think he has to mention something about the Windsor Framework Northern Ireland Protocol because part of his party is still, you know, debating that subject. So if he says something consultatory there and supporting the union and everybody 
but he's still British. Nothing legal, nothing in terms of it will change the Windsor framework, but something that sounds good again, you know, the optics and the and the words and all the rest of it. That may give, yes, I see your point, that may give Geoffrey something that he can hang his hat on and maybe then make a move to go back to Stormont. But then after that, you're into, you know, it's a practical point, you're into November, you're into the Christmas season, and then you fall into the point, well, let's wait to January, February and see what happens or... You know, even after the next election, was time can pass very quickly. So, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. But you know, it's uh, it's a possibility it could get back up and working before Christmas. But certainly, he has to be very careful how he handles his support base on the ground because there is still a good chunk, a majority of people there who are supporting the current policy. Now, they may move if Jeffrey moves, as I said before, but, um, you know, he's just got to be very careful how he manages his, his, his own supporter base and the broader unionist supporter base. What he has to do, Bill, and you're right, I mean, if Jeffrey is a devolution attack, which I think he is, and I think his leadership team is, they, they have to take possession of that. You know, you can say what you like about David Trimble, but when he decided he was going to do something, he took possession of it. He sold it at every level of the party and he didn't obsess about what was going on. You know, he took on his parliamentary team. He took on those, I mean, half his Westminster team were against him. He took on some very senior figures in the, in the party by simply saying over and over and over again to them, what's your alternative? If we don't do it, what are you, what are you offering right now to the party that's different? And I think if Donaldson is serious, about this. I think he has to, to get his party together and just say to them, say to Nigel Dodd, say to Sammy, say to Ian Jr. Okay, okay guys, we'll have we'll have a conference, not just a party, but a conference we'll discuss the future. You come up with your alternative to what if 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 the winter framework isn't going, if the protocol hasn't been changed, if Sunak isn't budget, if there's no chance of Keir Star- Starmer, who's already made it I think fairly clear he wouldn't reopen the negotiations either. What do we do guys in the absence of um devolution? What do we do in a world in which it's direct rule? What do we do if our choice is not between the Windsor framework and something else? You know, he has to have that conversation and I'm not sure he's having it. I'm not sure he's having it where he needs to have it. And people who are looking, whether it's across unionism or nationalism, wherever, the British government, the Irish government, even the EU in terms of the Windsor framework, I think they're actually looking for a very clear steer from what Donaldson himself, because he's the leader. What does he personally believe and is he willing to go into the ditch with it, take people with him and make a fight? there. Mm. Well, time will tell. It just leaves me to say, Bill White, Alex Keane, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.